this does is it sort of finally offers us a route potentially to breaking the taboo over fiscal risk sharing in the monetary union, something that has really held back risk appetite over the Eurozone as a whole. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This episode of our podcast, we present an excerpt from our weekly wrap with Aaron Lyons, our co-head of investment-grade research and U.S. investment-grade strategist as host, and Thomas Hurst, our European credit strategist as guest. If you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. Please enjoy the weekly wrap with Aaron Lyons and Thomas Hurst. Good morning and welcome to the weekly wrap call for Friday, June 19th. I'm Erin Lyons, the U.S. credit strategist at Credit Sites, and today my European counterpart, Tom Hurst, joins us from London. Thanks for joining today. We were last presenting in Milan, Geneva, and Paris right before COVID hit. Things have dramatically changed since that time. I'm glad we're still able to have our chats and present together. And, you know, we've been covering in these calls what we're seeing from the U.S. perspective. But I feel as though these markets are now less global. So sharing your perspective on what you're seeing could be really useful for us today. So I'll just start. How are things in London and in Europe? And are you starting to open up? Hi, Aaron, and uh, good morning, everyone. And thanks for having me on. I agree that January Roadshow feels like a completely different world ago. I guess on the reopening point, yes. We are starting to uh, move along that route, albeit sort of painfully slowly. In the UK, at least, retailers have begun reopening this month, uh, along with some schools. And we have been able to gather in groups of up to six people with higher risk businesses, such as restaurants, bars and, and some pubs, aiming to be reopened sort of early next month from July the 4th. However, I think the thing to keep in mind, and this is true in the UK and across Europe, is that with social distancing measures still in place for the foreseeable future, the extent to which things are returning to normal is still pretty limited with capacity constraints for most bricks and mortar businesses. So we do expect to see a relatively sharp near-term bounce back in consumer spending, much like the US is currently experiencing. But we don't know how long it could take for demand to return to its previous levels. I think that's the question that the market is now really wrestling with. Like in New York, London saw a very dramatic early rise in COVID cases, but it passed the peak of new infections some time ago. But there are lingering concerns that as we reopen here, we'll see the new case count start to climb again. And frankly, the UK government has so far failed to get its test and trace program up and running. A much hyped world beating tracing app that was supposed to have been live already back in May has suffered a series of issues with its development that's meant that it's actually now been scrapped and a replacement app scheduled to be released at best towards the end of this year. And the UK as a whole has done significantly worse than most of continental Europe in terms of its coronavirus response, as the government proved reluctant to lock down early due to concerns at the time about things like lockdown fatigue, leading to a higher first wave peak of infections and ultimately excess deaths. As a consequence, public trust in the government's ability to effectively handle any second wave of the virus remains something of an open question. So where I'd place us at the moment is the mood here is one of cautious optimism for the time being, but we have to continue to closely monitor developments for any signs of a reversal in that sentiment, especially spilling over into risk assets. In the US, it definitely seems that everyone wants to get back to normal and get up and running. So it seems the efforts we made over the past couple of months of shutdown are, from what I can see out my window, kind of uh, going out the window. But 
as I mentioned, like it feels like these markets are becoming a little more siloed. And I'm just curious, how have your markets reacted? What have been the safe trades and how are investors taking bets right now? It's a good question. Um, I think we've seen sort of two very distinct phases. Um, during the initial stages of the sell-off, European markets were sort of deeply underwhelmed, particularly with the limited package first proposed by the ECB in response to the pandemic. If we recall that that included Christine Lagarde's now somewhat infamous response that it wasn't the central bank's job to close the spreads in Eurozone sovereign bond markets. However, the negative market response prompted something of a rethink, and that led to the launch of the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme, which covered sovereign, supranational, corporate bond and commercial paper purchases. That was initially sized at around 750 billion, but has subsequently been increased by a further 600 billion to its current size of 1.35 trillion. And purchases have been extended from an initial deadline of December this year to June of next year. That's been complemented by large-scale subsidized lending programs to the Eurozone banking system, with interest rates up to 50 basis points below the ECB's deposit rate, which was already at minus 50 basis points. And to, put a, uh, to get a sense of uh, the take-up of those programs, uh, we saw the auction, this week's auction of cheap central bank funding was, I think, to the take-up was 1.3 trillion, which is a net increase in liquidity of the Eurozone banking system of around 550 billion. So we're talking huge sums here, and that should provide uh, decent support for sovereign spreads for the time being. And it's also provided a strong tailwind for corporate bond markets, which have rallied sharply. The initial stages of that rally saw less directly impacted sectors, such as utilities and telecoms, as well as bank-preferred senior bonds, pick up a strong bid, while more exposed sectors, such as leisure, metals and mining, uh, autos, and real estate, for example, were much slower to see that bid return. I think unlike in the US though, it's worth noting that the proximity of central bank interest rates to the effective lower bound in Europe has meant that price falls in corporate bond markets and indeed in equity markets have been more difficult to recover from. That's simply because there's less room in Europe for the long-term discount rate to adjust, leading to a dynamic where excess returns in Euro IG markets have significantly outperformed dollar markets, especially on a risk-adjusted basis due to the anchoring of that underlying discount rate, total returns have lagged significantly. And that's a dynamic I think we're gonna to continue to see going forward. Thanks, yeah, and it seems like from our sector performance, what we've been seeing is exactly the same, where you saw the safer havens rally through the, the peak of the COVID crisis and in the past couple of weeks, investors, and even we with our recs have stepped up and said, you know, leisure's not all bad, at least in IG, there's opportunities there, we took up energy, we're still cautious on metals and mining, as you as you pointed out, that's been a sector under stress. So if I think about how we've responded here in the States, the Fed has obviously made a really big mark, as you know, I've pointed out in different programs, but we also have seen various stimulus bills that have extended unemployment benefits, lent to businesses, and provided stimulus checks to millions of Americans. Have you had something similar happen in Europe? Yeah, so uh, we've had uh, a number of different programs. I mean, obviously in Europe, the complication is uh, different countries have had uh, sort of different programs and the coordination uh, of the mitigation measures has proven quite complex. We've already discussed the impact of the PPP program, um, but I think the biggest impact on European markets of late has actually come more by the European Commission's proposal for a European recovery fund by jointly issued debt. And that's sort of built on a model that uh, was put together by uh, 
Merkel and Macron uh, about a month earlier. And the idea is as much as 500 billion euros of grants would be raised via central bond issuance uh, at, at the European Commission level, funded by commitments from each member state according to their share in the capital key framework. But more importantly, it would be distributed according to the scale of the damage inflicted by the coronavirus. And on top of that, they're talking about 250 billion worth of loans to help lower borrowing costs for some of the worst affected countries. And what this does is it sort of finally offers us a route potentially to breaking the taboo over fiscal risk sharing in the monetary union, something that has really held back risk appetite over the Eurozone as a whole, while the sort of existential case was still hanging over it. However, to temper enthusiasm, it does have to first be passed unanimously by 27 member states represented on the European Council, with countries such as Austria, Denmark, Sweden and the Netherlands, all expressing reservations over the grant framework. They much prefer to do the whole thing via loans, and that is much less effective, obviously, in, uh, for countries that are already heavily indebted, like Italy, for example. But while we see the barriers to implementation as high, we don't see them as insurmountable at the moment. And that's simply because of the extent of the current crisis and the potential risks of failing to agree a sizable fiscal package to support the recovery. So we do think this actually does get through in the end. On top of that, most EU countries have implemented loan guarantee schemes, providing state guarantees on loans to corporates, SMEs, and even in some cases, self-employed individuals. The guarantees can cover anything from 70 to 90% of the principal, and generally are for loans up to six years. The UK in particular has a number of business-friendly schemes, including, but not limited to, the Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Scheme for SMEs, which allow them to borrow up to 5 million, and is available until the end of September. The Coronavirus Large Business Interruption Loan Scheme for larger companies, uh, which allows them to borrow up to uh, 50 million and runs until October the 20th. And the COVID financing facility to buy IG corporate paper, which will operate for 12 months. More recently, the government also launched the Business Bounce Back Loans uh, Scheme for SMEs, which allowed them to borrow up to 50,000 uh, pounds. Um, and that in its first day received over 100,000 applications. Other important measures we've seen in the UK, France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, Luxembourg, and Italy include furlough schemes for workers who remain on the payroll, but are not working or are tempor temporarily working reduced hours with part of their wages paid by the state. While attention has been focused on how societies can move out and about again, there is some question mark over whether these schemes will be extended and what will happen if they are not. The issue there is we could start to see uh, unemployment rates in Europe start to converge with the US, uh, which has had much more of its support uh, through uh, existing unemployment insurance. And that could potentially start to provide a bit of a headwind in terms of the way that people view the trajectory of the Eurozone, even though this is largely a technical due to the way these programs were structured. Elsewhere, we have also seen countries try to mitigate the collapse in economic activity from setting up a default cycle by introducing debt payment and rental payment moratoriums and suspensions of insolvency filings. And we've also seen pressure from bank regulators on banks to waive covenant defaults by borrowers caused by the pandemic. Thanks for that overview and giving us a sense of what the governments are trying to do. But as you think about that, your sector recs and which ones are better positioned moving forward and how are you thinking about the risks in the space? Yeah, so we recently published a piece looking at um, the sort of case for risk or the continued case for risk. Um, and I guess we sort of do this uh, looking at, at how the market has developed and, and you know, trying to find out uh, where we think it's going to go from here. The initial sell-off really came amid widespread concern over a looming liquidity crunch, with primary markets freezing up 
secondary market liquidity evaporating and a wave of redemptions across asset classes forcing funds to sell at fire sale prices and on top of that uh, significant regulatory easing. These effects helped to mitigate that immediate threat of a liquidity squeeze and allowed markets to begin to focus on the medium to longer term impacts of the crisis, prompting a sharp initial rally, but also a widening in spread dispersion between sectors depending on their impact, the, the sort of expected impact on their longer term trajectory. However, I think we're now seeing something quite different. This second leg of tightening has been associated with a convergence of spread between sectors and across both investment grade and high yield, and has been driven significantly, at least in our view, by falling terminal rate expectations in the US. The lower the discount rate there, the higher the present value of future cash flows, pushing up the nominal value of long duration assets. So for example, faster growing businesses like big tech, for example, should have seen significant outperformance in equity markets if that thesis is right. And we think we have indeed see, uh, seen that. One important thing to note here though, is that a, a low discount rate means that market rallying, markets rallying can still imply significant value destruction as the impact of lower long-term rates might have just more than uh, offset the hit to earnings. That means that even if equity markets take out recent highs, that could simply imply investors have become more pessimistic about the ability of economies to recapture their previous trend growth paths, meaning real rates are expected to remain below their historic levels, rather than meaning they're necessarily more bullish over the outlook for corporate earnings. Thanks, Tom. So you've taken that and you work with the team very closely to come up with what the recommendations are at the sector level. Um, it does feel like to me that we could go either way on, on spreads, giving some of the risks that we both see through the end of the year with, you know, say second spike of, of COVID. I've gone in the direction of being more bullish and, and think that technicals win. How are you and the team thinking about it? Yeah, so again, it's, a, it's an excellent question and one that we really had to wrestle with when we were reviewing our recommendations this time around. Uh, and I think from a recommendation perspective, the thing that we've kept in mind is that the COVID shock represents an extreme tail event that involves both a significant supply disruption running right alongside a substantial hit to near-term demand are likely to obscure a much larger spread of views than would be the case under normal circumstances. So even without a second wave of lockdowns, the path to a recovery is likely to be uneven and prone to reversals, even if we think it, we're highly unlikely to see the extent of the sell-off we did in February and March. I guess as a consequence, what we wanted to do with our recent review of the RECs is to seek to diversify our sources of alpha away from that straightforward sort of beta compression trade at this point. We have held our outperform on Eurobank 81s, which is quite a punchy bet, I guess, taking into account that they currently offer a decent yield pickup over European equity dividend yields. And we think that the banks will give greater priority to uh, protecting 81 coupons in order to protect their own financing conditions, while dividend suspensions have actually helped protect banks' capital bases in Europe. However, in order to offset the higher performance volatility we expect in that 81 recommendation, we've shifted our recommendations elsewhere in the bank capital structure. So we've downgraded our recommendation on the sort of non-preferred senior hold code debt from outperform to market perform. As it was trading, its volatility was much sim more similar to sort of legacy tier two than it was the preferred senior part of the cap structure. And we've upgraded our bank preferred or our opco senior um, recommendation to outperform from market perform. The aim there is to reduce the beta sensitivity of our bank recommendations, while also preserving a potential catalyst for our performance, as non-preferred 
uh, over preferred multiples start to grind back out close to their historical average. I guess elsewhere, where we're still um, uh, still happy holding uh, an outperform is in uh, the non-financial reverse Yankee triple B space, with AT&T and Verizon the two biggest issuers there. But it also includes names like GM and Altria. Not only are they currently offering around 20 basis points of spread pickup versus rating and duration matched European names, due in large part to the ECB's corporate bond purchase program, but they're also offering 25 basis points of pickup on a weighted average basis to the same universe of names in dollars. We think they should continue to grind into their European peers and, in, and enjoy an indirect benefit from the Fed's corporate bond purchase program, which you were discussing earlier. And we also think that the Fed the Fed purchases could skew potential new supply to the dollar market and not the euro market, protecting the euro bonds a bit more from repricing via new supply. On a sort of more curve-related calls, we've been recommending taking short-dated exposure in the autos with names like VW and Daimler that were trading significantly wide at the index at the short end, and also energy names like BP in euros, uh, with an expected curve deepening trade there due to improvements in liquidity conditions. But we're less confident there at the long end of the curve. We still think that's going to be uh, pushed around by developments uh, over the next few months, um, especially around 2Q earnings, as you were saying. And in terms of our longer dated exposure, uh, we, we prefer to take that in the less COVID exposed sectors, such as telecoms, where we quite like AT&T, Vodafone and Verizon, as well as the consumer goods sectors, such as McDonald's and Coca-Cola Europe which we think will see more limited long-run impacts from the coronavirus shutdowns. And we first released those trades about a month ago, and they've performed pretty strongly since we published our recommendations. But we, st we still feel there's some juice left in them. Thanks, and I've taken your comments around the spread pickup you get for the reverse Yankees when I think about the opportunities of what the Fed might buy and, and how non-US issuers uh, might lag in performance because they're not qualifying at the front of the curve. but now I'm scratching my head a little bit because BP, in fact, is one of the names that I heard was on the purchase list um, that the Fed had sent out. So I guess it does have substantial operations in the U.S., but it, perhaps it's not going to be as clear cut on the Fed side of the program versus what you've had on the ECB side. But let's move to new issue for a moment. We've just had a massive explosion of supply. And are you seeing something similar in euros and, and pounds? So uh, the short answer is uh, a resounding yes, uh, at least in investment grade. Although always, when I, whenever I compare these charts to the US ones, they always look rather diddly in comparison. Uh, year to date, we've seen around 380 billion of uh, new Euro IG bonds brought to market. Um, and to put that in perspective, that's more than double the pace of issuance we saw through the first half of 2018 and over 100 billion ahead of where we were in the first half of 2019, uh, which was a record year for gross Euro IG supply. Initially, we saw only higher quality names, rated sing, uh, single A and above, tapping the market after that primary market frees up in March, with new issue concessions of around sort of 40 or 50 basis points. And they tended to be concentrated in less impacted sectors, such as consumer staples. However, as sentiments improved, we've seen a much broader universe of issuers coming back to market, and indeed a much broader uh, variety of instruments with uh, autos names, uh, autos and energy names such as Repsol, BP and VW, all having brought corporate hybrid deals over the last uh, month or so. Moreover, not only were those deals able to price now, but demand was extremely strong with reported books in the low double digit, digit multiples. As a consequence of that strong demand, we've also seen average new issue concessions start to plummet to the mid to low single digits, 
and even that's often taken out in the grey market before the bonds hit the secondaries. So I'd say we've definitely seen issuers taking advantage of the reopening of primary markets to term out their funding as well as to add flexibility to their cap structures, which I guess is a broadly sensible move given the uncertainty over how things could develop from here. Right. So interesting. Everywhere, everyone everywhere is looking to borrow and it sounds like the investor demand has been so strong, similar to what we're seeing. Um, now we're going to where we have negative concessions. So maybe you're a week or two away from that as well in the IG space. But are you seeing similar trends in high yield as well? Yeah, so that's the interesting one. Um, and the short answer is um, not so much. Uh, that, that's where we've seen a really stark difference between what's been going on in dollar and euro new issue, issue markets. Uh, since the coronavirus sell-off began on February 21st, uh, Euro high-yield primary markets have effectively gone into hibernation, or had. In the first two months of 2020, Euro high-yield issuers brought around 17 billion of new fixed-rate bonds to market, um, putting the year comfortably ahead of 2018, which saw 9 billion, and 2019, which saw 8.6 billion over that same period. Since then, however, only 13 billion uh, euros of bonds have been brought putting 2020 on track to be the slowest year for new supplies since 2016. And that's in stark contrast to the experience of dollar high yield markets, where following a strong start to the year with about 60 billion brought in the first two months, primary markets dipped briefly in March before roaring back with over 90 billion of fixed rate high yield bonds issued since the start of April. So what's going on? Well, from our perspective, some of that is due to the supply picture in Europe being just far from challenging in the context of refinancing needs. There's around 19 billion of euro high yield maturities over the next 12 months, excluding subordinated bank debt and corporate hybrids. And of that, around 9 billion is accounted for by just seven issuers, Ford, ThyssenKrupp, Pemex, Verano, Telecom Italia, Teva and FCA. Moreover, a combination of RCF drawdowns to bolster short-term liquidity, government COVID-19 loan guarantee schemes, and the ECB's TLTRO funding incentives have meant that compositionally, Eurozone corporates have shifted much more of their near-term financing needs to the banking sector rather than trying to tap capital markets. Direct support from the central bank in Europe has also been lacking for high-yield markets today, with the ECB not yet following in the Fed's footsteps and grandfathering ratings for fallen angel names in the event that they lose their IG ratings and therefore their eligibility for its asset purchase programs. However, that's somewhat backward looking and we have started to see signs of life in the high yield primary market this month with names like Virgin Media, Cellnex and Syndoma coming to the market. And on our calculations, there's an estimated 22 billion of hung LBO or acquisition financing that's currently sitting on bank balance sheets awaiting syndication. And we see that as a potential significant source of near-term supply. So I guess I'd leave that question with, so watch this space. Thanks. One of the things that I always try to figure out and keep an eye on are hedging costs to get a sense of where investors may come from to buy US dollar bonds. I know that in Asia, hedging costs has come down substantially, so the dollar market has become that much more attractive to that buyer base. What are you seeing on the Euro side? Um, in terms of what investors are paying for hedge costs and then also how they're just thinking about the, the euro versus the dollar markets. Yeah, so here we've been on, again, something of a wild ride. Uh, in the midst of the sort of acute stage of the sell-off, uh, euro-dollar cross-currency basis saw some wild swings. 
that meant our models of cross-currency value were being massively swayed by uh, changes in hedging costs rather than necessarily bond pricing differentials between the two markets. But things now seem to have calmed down somewhat, as illustrated today, in fact, by major central banks announcing a scaling back of their dollar liquidity uh, provisions due to a lack of demand at the auctions, suggesting that the acute phase, at least, of the dash for dollars may be behind us for the moment. Stability in hedging costs means we can now have somewhat greater confidence in our cross-currency value models again. But sadly, they're not really suggesting there's terribly much to choose from between euro and dollar markets uh, at the moment. In fact, on a hedge basis, most of the big cross-currency issuers' curves are broadly back in line with each other, suggesting there's little by way of an arbitrage opportunity at, at present. There are some exceptions, with longer-dated GM in Europe looking a bit wider than the dollar bonds. And once again, one of my favourites, Altria, uh, trading wide again in Europe, though it is worth noting there that at least some of that could be to do with stricter ESG screening by euro accounts that tend to exclude tobacco from buy lists. Overall, if you compare the two markets, euro IG spreads are looking a little wider at the short end of the curve, around sort of 15 to 20 basis points than in dollar markets, but much tighter at the long end of the curve, potentially reflecting the greater stability of that long-term discount rate we were discussing above. I suspect we might see an easing in cross-border in cross flows, however, at this stage, given the convergence of monetary policy we've seen over the COVID crisis and the huge pickup in sovereign and corporate bond supply that's really soaking up the portfolio balance effect of central bank purchases on both sides of the Atlantic. Great. And I very much remember those conversations in Europe when you were pitching Altria to the crowd and it was just blank stares and saying, no, we do not buy tobacco companies. I can but try, Erin. I can but try. I know. <laughs> that was a very clear message from the European accounts. Um, I just wanted to say thanks for joining us, but is there anything else that we should know from your side of, um, of the pond? Yeah, so I guess I'd finish with we will shortly be publishing our quarterly European uh, credit market monitor pack that covers our macro outlook, uh, a look at market technicals and our positioning in both Euro IG and high yield. Um, and now I set it on a webinar, I'm committed. So keep your eyes out for that. Um, and I guess uh, for me, it's just thanks again for having me on. It's been an absolute blast. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. You've just listened to an excerpt from our weekly wrap, which is available to our subscribers. So thank you to Aaron Lyons and Thomas Hurst for your presentation. And thank you, listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com, or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Creditsites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complaint in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.